Good morning. Good morning. Is this on? Can you hear me? As we turn our attention to God's word this morning, we seek to receive it with reverence and humility. The summons to the word found in your bulletin helps us to do just that. Let's read it together. If you call out for insight, if you cry out loud for understanding, if you look for it as silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, if you will, sorry, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. This morning's scripture reading is taken from Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. In the Blue Pew Bible, it could be found on page 830. Again, the text is Matthew 5, verse 6, on page 830 of the Blue, Blue Bible. Hear now the word of the Lord from the book of Matthew. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, would you equip us by the power of your Holy Spirit to uh, change us inside, from the inside out, to conform us to the likeness of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Uh, amen. Well, as a family, uh, we have been watching a TV series in the last couple of weeks. We've been binge-watching a TV series called The Mandalorian. Now, kids, uh, do you know this show? Some of you kids, you know this show? Some of you adults might know this show, The Mandalorian. It's about a character in the Star Wars universe. Uh, he's, a, he's a bounty hunter. And the basic premise, and again, I don't mean no insult if you're a Mandalorian fan, but if you're not familiar with the, the story, I'm going to give you sort of the, a sense of the basic idea. The basic premise is that if, if you're familiar with the old Clint Eastwood westerns, you know, this, what were called the spaghetti westerns, basically the Mandalorian is a spaghetti western set in the Star Wars universe. It's sort of an idea. If, if, if you can imagine that Clint Eastwood, at the very beginning, rescues a baby and becomes attached to it and takes this baby everywhere with him. Of course, in the, in the Mandalorian, it's not really a baby. It's a, it's a little, looks like often people call them called Baby Yoda. It's the same character, same creature as Yoda, if you remember the Star Wars, a small green character. And, uh, and, and so it's, 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 and it's a brilliant premise. I mean, we love Westerns. We love Star Wars. Uh, there's this wonderful attachment between this character, this Mandalorian, who, whose voice even sounds like Clint Eastwood, by the way. In fact, at, fr at first I thought it was Clint Eastwood. But it's not, but it sounds a lot like him. And he acts very much very similar. So he's this sort of rough and tough uh, character uh, who you never want to meet in a gunfight. And uh, he has this uh, baby Yoda with him, and they go on their various adventures. And we've been watching it as a family over the past few weeks. And just last night, we finished the second of, of the two seasons so far, so that it's, it was, it's over now. And you ever, have you ever done that? Maybe it's a great movie or a great book or a great series, and it, and it come to the end. And it's like, ah, oh, it's, it's over. I mean, we, we were so into the story. We would talk about it. What's going to happen next? How's he going to get out of this? Right, we've been positive and saying, what's going on? We're explaining it. We're, we're into the story, and now it's over. And, and we feel this kind of like a sadness, a bit, and a bit lost, like, well, what, what now? Right? What now? You feel a bit empty. This is really important. We've gotten caught up 
in a story that was bigger than our own. We had gotten caught up in a cause that was greater than our own, and it moved us. For a short time, for a few weeks, it kind of filled us. You know, will evil win? Will Moff Gideon and his dark troopers win? What's going to happen next? And we were wanting to be a part of the story, to enter into it themselves. And the question, of course, is in, in, that, in that being or in that participation, what was going on? What was happening? What was filling us? Recently, I read a, a review of, a, of an autobiography, and some of you kids may not know who this is, but it's an autobiography written in 2011 by an actor named Rob Lowe. Some of you may remember Rob Lowe from the Rat Pack from the 80s, and he's been in various films since the West Wing or TV shows, West Wing, and more recently, I think, uh, Parks and Rec. And what caught my eye was that the reviewer, who's apparently this authority on Hollywood autobiographies, he wrote this statement. He says, this is the greatest, listen to this statement. He says, this is the greatest Hollywood memoir ever written. And he actually went and had a discussion, sorry, this, you know, a two-paragraph discussion of all these various memoirs from the last, like, 80 years of Hollywood memoirs. And he says, this is the best one that's ever been written. And then he says this, he said, I, and he didn't, he didn't uh, read the, the mum, he, he uh, listened to it. Rob Lowe actually was reading it, and so he listened to it while he was traveling somewhere. And the author says, I, I'd spent nine transfixed hours listening to Rob Lowe's cheerful gossip about everyone from Tom Cruise to Bill Clinton, intermingled, listen to this, intermingled with hard-won insights about the lurking dangers of the dissipated life. What does dissipated mean? Kids, dissipated means corrupt. It means pursuing, just doing whatever, living however you want to live. And he summarizes, he says this, in short, between the ages of 15 and 26, Rob Lowe lived the life that young men think they want. And it nearly destroyed him. Oh, this is going to fill me. Rob Lowe, money, great looks, right? Popularity, vocational success. And the author continues. He says, the night that Lowe's mother phoned him, he was age 26, the night his mother phoned to tell him that his grandfather had a massive heart attack, his girlfriend had just dumped him after catching him with another woman. His instinct was to chug some tequila and go to bed. But catching a glimpse of his wasted self in the mirror, he thought, I'm so hammered, I can barely stand. The girl I love has just left me because I can't keep my word and have no integrity. My grandfather is dying. My mother is in a crisis. And I am cowering and hiding. So the next day, he begged his girlfriend to take him back. And then he married her. Today, he and his wife, he's a makeup artist, I think, have been married for nearly 30 years. And they've raised two young men together. In fact, since 26, Lowe has been sober. And the article says, Lowe discovered through experience, what, listen to this, what cognitive scientists have found in recent decades, that we humans are extraordinarily bad at predicting what will make us happy. <laughs> Let me say that again. 
right? Lowe discovered through experience what cognitive scientists have found in recent decades that we are extraordinarily bad at predicting what will make us happy. Let me say it this way. We are, we are terrible at discerning what will actually fill us. And this morning, just as Jen Davis has read for us, Jesus speaks of what will fill us. He speaks of, of how bad we are at, at predicting what will fill us. And because of that, it may surprise, it may surprise us what he says. Let me read it again. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. As we've seen, and we've seen before, this is our uh, fourth beatitude, if I remember right, fourth beatitude. Blessed means fortunate. It means it will go better for you. Blessed are those who hunger. It'll, it'll, be, it'll be better for you if you are hungering and thirsting for righteousness because you'll be filled. You'll be satisfied. You'll be content. It will go better for you. Fortunate. That's what blessed means. And of course, here, to hunger and thirst, that phrase, to hunger and thirst, is a way of speaking of longing. It's a way of speaking of, one, of something that we crave something that we have an appetite for, something that we're pursuing. Blessed are those who are pursuing, who are going after, who are longing for, who are craving. What? Well, Jesus says righteousness. What, what does he mean by that? What does it mean to, to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Well, there are a number of different possible solutions. Commentators give a couple different ideas, but I'm going to give you mine here. because I, I, I'm going to give you my take on it here. Jesus here is speaking of a longing, a longing to be caught up as both a participant and a spectator in how God is writing the world and how God is making the world right. It's a longing to have a front row seat and, and even a, having a hand in God's renewing, restoring, God's renewing and restoring of the world. So righteousness here is this idea of God making all things new, of God restoring things to their original design. Kids, do remember at the very beginning of the service this morning, I mentioned this idea of having a toy, a toy that you love, it's your favorite toy, and somehow it breaks. You think, ah, right? You're so discouraged, and you long for nothing more than that, for that toy to be fixed in some way. And sometimes it can be fixed, right? Somehow mom's able to pull out the super glue, or we're able to fix it. You can actually fix it yourself. It's just simply like a Lego and it falls, but you can put it back together. We long for things to be restored to their created design. And here to hunger and thirst for righteousness is this beautiful idea that we believe, we come to see that God, in fact, the creator is, has, is at work in this world and he is making things right. And we want to watch that, but we also want to participate in it ourselves. Sometimes this text is often refers to a, a private personal piety, hungering and thirsting for just being a really good moral person. And that's, that's part of it in the sense that part of, part of and what we're called to do is to, to take up the, 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 the summary of the law, to take up this act of love and to be to those who are doing the right thing. But it's more than that. It's bigger than that. We're longing to see the world made right. And we realize I can't do that on my own. I can't begin to do that on my own. And in fact, if it's just me trying to be a nice guy, well, we know where nice guys finish. Where do they finish? 
nice guys finish last, right? But if I'm caught up in a narrative that's bigger than mine, or if I'm realizing there really is a God who really is at work in real ways in the world, and I'm going to be part of that, no matter what may happen to me personally, I may get crucified, but I'm still part of something bigger, and it's what I long for. Okay? So, it's, so here, hungry and thirsting for righteousness is not some personal private piety, nor is it the role of a passive spectator who just sits and says, well, God's going to do it all. I'm just going to sit back in my pew and just watch. You know, a popcorn. Right? It's this longing, this thirsting, as both participant and spectator, for the world to be made right, for God to be renewing and restoring his world. And he says, Jesus says, that, that it is in that act, in that act of both spectator and participant, and that we long for that restoring, that it is there and then that we will be filled. Isn't that amazing? I've been reading some of the speeches of a woman by the name of Fanny Lou Hamer. Fanny Lou Hamer was a 1960s, uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s um, uh, uh, civil rights leader in the civil rights movement, black, right, black uh, movement of, of uh, that, that era, sort of a contemporary of um, Martin Luther King. And it's fascinating to read her story. She grew up in the, in the Mississippi Delta area. Her dad was a Baptist minister and sharecropper. She was a sharecropper full-time. She was also a Baptist minister. And it's just amazing to read her story and the way that her parents, all around her, she would be out working. I mean, her, she and her family would be working outside, sharecropping 15, 16, 18 hours a day never able to make ends meet, always in debt to the, the white farmers who own the, the, um, who own the land. And, and she, there's this one very powerful encounter that, that she has, or a discussion that she has with her mom. When she's out there one day, they're sweating, they're, they're, they actually have a really a bumper crop, it's a, it's a, they're, they're doing well, but still, despite the fact that they're doing well, they're still going to be in debt, they're still not going to be able to make ends meet. And she says to her mom, she said, listen to this. She says, Mama, I wish I were white. And later she explained, the reason I said it was that we would work all summer and we would work until it got, got, we'd get so cold that you would have to tie rags around your feet and sacks to keep your feet warm while we would get out the scrap cotton. And after all this work, she said, we wouldn't have anything we wouldn't have anything to eat. Sometimes we wouldn't have anything but water and bread. The white landowners, on the other hand, would have, would have very good food. And yet, quote, they wasn't doing nothing, unquote. And so to her child's mind, the solution was simple. To make it, you had to be white. And she said, and I wanted to be white. And her mother quickly challenged his desire. She told Fanny, Fanny Lou that she said, quote, there was nothing in the world wrong with being black. And then listen to this. Listen to the wisdom of Mama. Be grateful that you are black. If God had wanted you to be white, you would have been white. So you accept yourself for what you are and respect yourself as a black child. And then her mom said something that I thought was so great. This message that she shared was a message of basically saying, look, being white isn't what it's cracked up to be. Being white is an actually an incredibly dangerous thing. 
And there's a song that her mother taught her. The song is this. I would not want to be a white man. Why does it drip in the snow? They ain't got God in their heart. To hell they sure must go. Isn't that amazing? See, so that the mother was instilling in her child an awareness that actually what the white family had, there was no fullness. There was no fulfillment. And that actually her life, and she, the life that she goes on to live, her father her mother loved her deeply, taught her the Bible. In fact, it was in the black church that she first began to be able to speak, to come to an awareness of the world as it is. It's such an amazing story. Um, it's amazing that one of the authors is commenting on Hamer says, as a child of a black Baptist preacher, Hamer was not unlike scores of notable male civil rights organizers and orators who grew up learning lessons from the Bible in their home and hearing their fathers preaching the word from the pulpit. Did you hear that? This whole this army of civil rights actors, of civil rights organizers and orators, where did they grow up? Where did they get this sense of justice, this longing and thirsting for righteousness, not only in, within them, but around them in their communities, in their neighborhoods, in their nation? Where did it come from? It came from Sunday morning. It came from at home, reading the stories of Scripture, longing for God to right the world. If there's one thing that I want for my kids, if there's one thing I want for them, is that they would have this hunger. They would have this thirst. You know, so often today, Listen to this. This is so important. Today, especially in our suburban context, there is a superficial, naive, privileged existence that many of our, I mean, as parents, but many of our kids have. It's an existence that sees little wrong with the world the way it is. Everything's fine. There's no longing for righteousness. Everything's okay. They're so protected, so sheltered. There's an apathy. I don't care. What's the big deal? It's an apathy. And you know what happens so often to those students, those high schoolers who are apathetic? Ah, just doing their own thing. What's amazing is they're, they're apathy. They, they go off to college. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to take a stand here. They go off to college and so often they get indoctrinated into this elitist perspective that sees so much wrong with the world, the world out there. Not the world in here, but the world out there. They see so much wrong with its structures and its systems and those who blindly support them. And they become indignant, irritated, annoyed, and offended. And now they're not apathetic. They're just annoyed. You're running to an annoyed college grad, writing their Facebook, pasting articles. They're just annoyed, irritated. And Jesus is calling to us neither to be apathetic nor to be annoyed. He's calling us to something different, to have a longing, a thirsting for righteousness. See, so often, again, I'm going to talk about our youth culture today. Our youth today can be, we can lose them to a place where they are simply not much different from a, a, a bump on a log staring at a screen playing video games or watching TikTok hours on end in this semi-vegetative state. <laughs> right? In a condition of self-sustained or self-imposed solitary confinement, all alone in their room. 
Sometimes I think the weekend will come when I'll open one of my teen daughter's bedroom doors and I'll find their skeleton holding a phone. <laughs> right? Oh, that they would see that the world is a mess, that humanity is in a bind, that our institutions and our leaders are corrupt. That they would want to march, they would want to enlist, they would want to be part of a movement to see justice done. And it's been so awesome. My daughters, uh, the last uh, five, six weeks, I'm going to brag on them, because the last five or six weeks, they've been having these slumber parties on Friday nights, and they're hanging out with five, or, you know, three, four, or five other girls. And, uh, and it's been amazing as they've gotten to know them and start to realize that these ladies' lives are difficult. That their home lives are hard. Their moms and dads aren't together anymore. And there's a brokenness and a sadness and a loss and an emptiness. And their hearts are moved by that. How is God calling me to love my classmates? How is God calling me to, to care for them, to pray for them? And there's a longing, a longing for restoration, a longing for renewal, what can I do as a participant? What can God do? And I can watch him be at work. And so there's this longing, thirsting for righteousness or for justice. Okay? Now, I'm going to ask a very important question here in our day that must be asked. Jesus said we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Hunger and thirst for justice. The question is, whose justice but what is dividing our nation, as you can read on your various social media feeds, or you can read in the news, there are all manner of different definitions of justice. And the question is, who's justice? Who gets to decide what's right or wrong? Who gets to decide what is, what is just and what is unjust? And that's where we as Christians have to grow. Oh my goodness, we have to grow. Matthew 6.33 says what? Does this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. This is not righteousness defined, defined by higher education. It's not righteousness defined by conservatives. It's not righteousness or justice defined by progressives. It's justice and righteousness defined by God, by the scriptures. And that's something that we as an evangelical church are terrible at. We need to recover a biblical view of justice. Let me just give a particular example of that. If you have your Bible, just turn with me really quick. I'm going to give you a great example of this, okay? Let me give you an example of poverty. How do we, do we as Christians think about poverty? Let me give this example, and we'll, we'll come, I'll land the plane here, and we'll, we'll, we'll conclude our time. But I want to give this example. If you have your Bible, turn to uh, Exodus 23.2. Exodus 23.2. It's on page 67 of your pew Bible, if you want to follow along with a blue pew Bible. This is, look at uh, Exodus 23.2. This is some beautiful words for uh, justice here. This is just the Old Testament law, so rich, so beautiful in its understanding of justice. Exodus 23.2 says, Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. In other words, it may be that the opinion polls are wrong. It may be that your classmates are wrong. It may be, it may be that the majority opinion on justice is wrong. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. And then it says, when you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. 
You're asked what's right or wrong. You're asked to give, to give testimony. D- don't side with the popular people. Now listen to this, verse 3. And do not show favoritism to a poor person in a lawsuit. Well, that's interesting. Because there are some views today that look at, the, that look at poverty and they think, oh, if you're poor, it's not your fault. You're just a victim. You're a victim of the system. You must be innocent. If you're poor, if you're disadvantaged, you have nothing to do. And here it just says, hey, it just says, hey look, just because someone's poor doesn't mean you should show them any favoritism. Now turn, if you will, go, go a little bit to the right, to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, 19 verse 15. That's on page uh, 101. 101 on your pew Bible. Leviticus 19.15 says, Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor. So we, do, we just heard that. Or do not show favoritism to the great. But judge your neighbor fairly. See, there's a often progressive views that view poor people only as victims. Hey, it's not their fault. And then there are often conservative views that say, hey, you know what, the poor are lazy. The reason they're poor is that it's their, it's their fault. They're just, they're just lazy. And, and, and actually, the Bible actually doesn't side with either one of those views. It actually says, hey, don't, don't show favoritism one way or the other. In fact, in fact, let me just turn to one more passage, to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Moses is instructing judges how to, li- how to, how to, do, how to, how to judge. It's Deuteronomy uh, chapter 1, verse 17. It's on page uh, 149 of your pew Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, uh, verse 17, he tells judges, he says, he says this. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. We could translate it here. Hear both poor and wealthy alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. So he's saying there should be no privileging one way or the other. There should be no partiality one way or or the other. There's just an example, a very small example, of how a biblical view of the poor transcends or challenges both progressive and conservative views today. So again, when we're called to hunger and thirst for righteousness, for justice, we have to ask, who's justice? Who gets to decide what is right and wrong here? And it should lead us to the scriptures and not just simply adopt a progressive view, baptize it, in sort of biblical language, or adopt a conservative view and baptize it with biblical language, but to ask the really hard question, what do the scriptures say about this issue of justice? So we're to hunger and thirst, we're to long to be participants, to be caught up in what God is doing in the world. Let me just give you a few examples before we close here. When I, I think I may have told this particular story before, but when I, after, right after Hurricane uh, Maria just ravaged uh, the island of Puerto Rico, uh, as, as Sarah and I and our family were involved in a bunch of humanitarian relief work that we were doing, we, uh, asked, we sought the help of several of our neighbors, Puerto Rican neighbors, and they, were, they would participate with us in the work. And there was a guy who lived just across from us. He was in his early 20s. His name was Ricardo. And, I'll never, and Ricardo loved more than anything, he loved to play video games. He would tell me about the video games he was playing and, and what he would you know, do. He was, he, his favorite game was called Call of Duty. And I'll never forget, in a conversation with Ricardo, as we were coming back from a long day of handing out food and water and, and medicine, etc., he said to me, he said, uh, he said Bruce, he, he shook his head, and he said, I, he said, I can't believe, he says, I love doing this work. 
He said, it is more satisfying than playing Call of Duty. I feel more alive. I feel more alive. To use Jesus' words, I feel more filled when I am caught up in a narrative, a story, an act of helping to right the world. Call of Duty, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You know, as a minister, let me just testify as a minister, the feeling of fullness that I get after I've invited someone into our home and Sarah's made this beautiful meal for them and we've talked about things that really matter in life and I've prayed for them. The sense of fullness that I get after a counseling session when someone comes in and they are hurting, they're confused, they're overwhelmed, they're addicted, whatever it might be, and I'm able to, by God's grace, point them to their Savior, point them to their Rescuer. Point them to the one who really can make their world right. The fullness, the the sense of being stuffed, if you will, that I get after having a lunch or a happy hour with one of you, and we've talked about things that matter. Proverbs 11.25 says, Whoever refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Isn't that beautiful? That's one of the things I love as a pastor. I get to have a front seat to not only participating, but watching God do beautiful things. To watching God make the world right. Let me conclude with this. Jesus himself was both the recipient, but also the agent of God's justice. No more, if you want to know if God cares about justice, you look to the cross. Because he did not spare his own son to make you and I right with him and now jesus at the right hand of the father is that agent of justice not only punitive but restorative that jesus himself is active do you believe this he is active in your life in this church in our community he is active restoring renewing making the world right and i'm asking you this morning to stop and say am i looking for that am i enlisted am i a participant am i a spectator am i longing Am I hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Because there will come a day when all will be well. Julian of Norwich, a 14th century um, woman of faith in an era of war, 100 years war between France and, and, and uh, in England, in the midst of war, in the midst of famine, the famine that often, often comes with war, and even not only war and famine, but even plague, where she was isolated all by herself in her, in her chamber in the church, living in, again in isolation. She writes these beautiful words. One who has suffered so greatly, she looks to a day with longing and says, one day, on that day, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Do we long for that day? Oh, that our hearts would be broken by the pain and sorrow of our world, and we would long for God to act. Let's pray together.